This podcast delivered by Australia Post. Whatever you're sending, they make it easy to pay and print your shipping labels from anywhere. And if you're in a metro area, they can come and pick up your parcels with My Post Business. Find out more and go to ozpost.com.au slash podcast. Australia Post. They put everything behind your business. Now, time for the show. Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, and I'm here with David Scott. Great to be back, Paul. And our guest this week, uh, joining us back on the show, is a senior economist at ANZ. Uh, it's Joanne Masters. Joe, thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me back. Uh, we've got a packed uh, agenda this week. Um, first, let's look at. We're going to look at Australia's economy. Twenty-five years of. Uh, of economic growth now with without a recession. Um, we're going to um, take a dive into some of the details of the, the um, quarter two GDP report, which was out this week. Um, always a, a whole bunch of ways to slice and dice that. Um, then there's been some more, uh, I think, eyebrow-raising um, uh, data coming out in the high-frequency data we've had over recent weeks, so in terms of consumer confidence and then um, the uh, the PMI surveys uh, uh, that we've had over the last month from the AI group. Um, we're going to quickly look at uh, at the rates outlook and and the currency outlook. And uh, there's been something happening in Japanese bonds too. Uh, and uh, when Japanese bonds are on the move, um, it's always worth um, just having a quick look to see what that might be telling us. Right. So um, let's get started on um, on GDP. Um, I think I've used this line before, but Australia's astonishing economy does it again. Uh, for all of the doomsayers, I mean, think how many times have you seen stories over the last couple of years saying a recession is coming, all that kind of stuff, and here we are. Um, the economy growing at a rate of 3.3% uh, in the year to the, to the June, in the year to June. Um, it, it, astonishing by, um, by global standards in, in, in advanced economies. Headline figures, um, great. Um, and this goes back now 100 consecutive quarters. Uh, without a technical recession, dodged a bullet in the GFC. Um, I might just start with you guys. You, you've been uh, obviously watching this and the sort of vagaries of the um, uh, of the cycle and the sort of warnings of maybe there's a recession around the corner at any one point over over your careers. Um, Joanne, what do you think has been? What's your summary of what has helped make make all of this happen? Sure. Look, you know, obviously it's not just one or two things. It's a combination of things. And, and some of those are factors that we've generated and some of those have just sort of been good luck in, in a sense. So I think what we've done is we've developed a more nimble and flexible economy. So the growth of the services side of our um, economy has been really important. And, and the way I think about that is it's added another string to Australia's bow, if you like, which was previously really concentrated around commodities and mining. And of course, commodities and mining are highly cyclical, and that was giving us uh, much bigger swings in our business cycle. So uh, a growing service sector has been a really important part of a smoother in, um, business cycle over the last 25 years. Structural reform has obviously played a really big role in that, but also in policy and, of course, the introduction of inflation targeting has also helped to smooth that business cycle, and that's been a really successful policy uh, change here in Australia. And it's given us more preemptive uh, monetary policy, and, and you know, so that's helped to uh, smooth the, the good times but also keep the bad times at bay, if you like. There's some of the things that we've created. Uh, the area, I guess, where we were lucky was, as you said, we dodged a bullet in the GFC, and that's courtesy of, of China, uh, largely in the emergence of China, and, of course, the commodity boom that came with it, which largely shielded or buffeted Australia from that GFC. 
Yeah, and I suppose the the free-floating currency, it really is extraordinary the um, extent to which the Australian dollar moves um, when there is, say, commodities weakness and um, you know, which is, uh, I guess, what happened during the GFC. One of the factors um, when when we went through the GFC, um, the Australian dollars plunged, um, uh, but recovered very quickly as we got to sort of mining boom uh, part two, and that was very um, positive for national income. Look, that's exactly right. It's a currency that's doing what it should do, absolute textbook. Um, the swings were quite big, I guess, compared to what many had expected, but it did do its job. It, it helped to contain growth at the top side and had its role in inflation. And then, um, obviously, as the mining boom came to an end, we've seen the currency weaken substantially again, and that's provided a support to exports, particularly services exports. And that's been a big part of the story in the last couple of years as to why growth hasn't been as weak as many had feared, why we didn't get a recession. You know, even at the low, growth was around 2%, which when you think about the size of the mining boom that has come to an end is a remarkable performance. David, you had a great summary um, talking to our colleagues in London yesterday about three points, three bullet points. Um, they, they dropped us a note saying, congratulations on your 100 quarters, sort of nerds that we are. Um, but you went down through, well, here are the reasons, and I thought it was a great take. I'm joining you. I'm glad that uh, you enjoyed it. Um, I'm sure they certainly did. Not that they commented. Rude. Um, look, uh, my take, obviously, when you're measuring things in volume terms, population growth has been an incredibly important factor. It always helps when you've got a high population when you're measuring things in volumes. Um, you've also touched on the floating Aussie dollar past reforms that have been made, inflation targeting, China obviously producing the biggest uh, infrastructure stimulus boom ever seen in, uh, in, in modern times. Uh, always helps to go and buttress an economy that uh, relies upon commodity exports. Um, another big thing for me, though, is uh, I think that part of the inflation targeting is obviously what we're seeing with interest rates as well, and I think that the RBA has gone and brought forward a lot of demand. Uh, households have become the wealth effect has, uh, has helped them consume more. Uh, but the question now that has to be asked, and Greg McKenna wrote an excellent piece on this uh, yesterday, was uh, how long can that last and, and where does the Australian economy go from here? Yeah, um, and it is absolutely, this is a nice segue into um, looking at the Q2 GDP uh, data, which we got, uh, which we got this week. Uh, headline figure, great. Um, all sorts of reasons, I, I suppose, to be um, to be optimistic, um, and uh, obviously, you'll see the um, the treasurer out doing a jig in the streets, um, very happy about uh, you know Australia's astonishing record. Um, but when you look underneath it, there are a couple of things that are worrying. And it was actually an ANZ uh, note that I read this morning, Joe, um, which just pulled out the, um, the uh, consumption number, uh, and that was um, surprisingly weak. Look, it was weak. Um, as you said, by and large, the data was quite strong and actually the economy looks okay, but that consumption data was disappointingly weak after three or four quarters of quite strong consumption growth. Uh, consumption growth halved. Now, it was still positive, but um, disappointing. And in large part, it's disappointing because it's such a big part of our economy. You know, it's 60% of our economy, right? So it's important and it's very hard to keep growth above potential if the consumer isn't firing. Um, what was interesting, though, is that the weakness in that consumption was what, uh, in what we call consumer staples. So they're non-discretionary uh, spending. They're things that you have to spend money on, like your utility bills and the like. So that doesn't really gel. Generally, in a slowing economy, you'd expect your discretionary spending to come off first. So 
Um, it, it looks a little bit at odds with what we would expect, and it also feels a bit at odds with an economy that's had strong employment growth, that's got a wealth effect uh, through housing, um, and also wage growth that looks like it's stabilising now, admittedly at low levels. But we would have thought that consumption would have been a little bit stronger. So I'm not ready to write it off just yet, but I think uh, next quarter's consumption numbers will be really important. Yeah, and in this area, um, I, I suppose you got, when you have have wages growth the way it is, um, I suppose, is there a natural flow-on effect to people sort of thinking, well, look, wages growth still isn't doing anything, um, we're almost at the end of the year now, um, maybe they're seeing, you know, the, no wages, um, uh, there's no big pay increases for anybody across the economy, really, um, and maybe some of that is, you know, feeding through to, well, got to maybe put a lid on um, on spending and just make, making sure the household budget um, is a little bit more carefully managed. Do you think some of that is, is what's happening? Look, we've been seeing households do that for some time now. We know that a large portion of the reduction in mortgage rates, uh, instead of being spent, is actually being used to redress household balance sheets. So household debt in Australia is extremely high and households post-GFC have been somewhat uncomfortable with that and, and looking to pay down debt. So that's certainly been a big part of it. I guess offsetting weak wage growth, though, has been strong employment growth. So whilst wages aren't growing, more people have jobs, which, you know, it's hard to net that out. But um, overall, I wouldn't expect consumers to be really pulling their heads in. I mean, things look quite good in the economy, particularly across uh, New South Wales and Victoria, which are obviously the bigger bigger states. So one of the interesting things we were talking just before we came on um, was about business investment. When you look at the rolled up um, business investment numbers is very ugly. Um, I think I saw UBS comment from them that it's the lowest basically since 1991, and we all know what was happening back then. Um, but uh, there are some more positive signs in other parts of the economy. We got the CapEx data last week, which showed that maybe this is bottoming out, but you were talking about how New South Wales and Victoria is actually looking um, pretty good. Look, that's exactly right. And when you look at business investment, I guess, you know, we strip out mining investment. We know that's weak. The good news about that, though, is that we're po probably at the peak drag from the, the wind down of mining investments and those LNG mega projects. Outside of mining, though, the, the non-mining business investment seems to have been the missing link in the recent recovery. But what is encouraging is that we are seeing some improvement in New South Wales and Victoria in non-mining business investment. And that is encouraging. They're the states that haven't got the drag from mining. Um, they're the states that are really driving economic growth at the moment. Um, so in terms of looking at growth going forward, it's really encouraging to see business investment in those areas pick up. And on our estimates, uh, in nominal terms, business investment in those non-mining states is up 9% over the last year. So that is a really encouraging sign for economic growth over the year ahead. Yeah, and I guess, I suppose, one of the sort of realities of this, like I think generally... Um, people um, aren't sort of as, as obsessive about the details of these numbers as, as you know, people in our circles might be. Um, but people do see things like unemployment rate is stable or falling. Um, they realize that interest rates are low, so borrowing is cheap, and they're not likely to go rapidly higher anytime soon. That's just not that that's not a conversation that's that's happening. No, that's not a conversation anyway. Yeah. Um, so there's, um, you know, so generally people can kind of be, I can see how, you know, things are kind of okay. And you may be getting some of these businesses now thinking, look, 
it looks stable. Um, maybe a few um, questions, uncertainty over the last couple of years, but things, you know, finally getting around to, okay, if we need to do something, if we really need to develop this business and there's an opportunity here, long, um, if, if rates are where they are for the foreseeable future, um, maybe there's an opportunity we can go ahead and start uh, start building those businesses, as you say, in, uh, in New South Wales. Now, there's um, been lots right. of theories around why business investment has been weak and, you know, there's been a lot of conversation about high hurdle rates in Australia and those sort of things. But uh, I think two things that are really important is, um, I guess, firms to invest must be seeing an increase in demand, which they believe will be sustainable. So if you see business investment picking up, that's really positive. And of course, also perhaps a belief that low interest rates are here to stay. Now, I know it seems crazy in our circles to think that it's taken a while to get there, but I think for some of those smaller businesses, perhaps that realisation that the interest rate structure is lower and going to remain lower for a prolonged period. Um, so. We looked at those. So there's um, overall good picture from the GDP data. Um, some of the investment um, numbers are starting to pick up. If you only focused on the backwards numbers, um, you I think be getting very incomplete picture on business investment. Um, but in the last few weeks, um, when we think about that that drop in consumption and household consumption that was in the GDP data, it's been a couple of other little things, not anything to really get, I think, terribly troubled about, but a couple of other, like the oil light coming on on the dashboard, right? Um, I, I did a piece earlier this week, basically said that, uh, exactly that. There's some warning lights just starting to flash. Um, David, um, the, um, the PMI manufacturing survey, um, the um, services industry, industry survey, the, the PSI, and then the construction industry, uh, PCI. Um, do you want to talk us through what happened with those? Certainly. Uh, first and foremost, when we talk about PMIs, we look at the 50 as being a neutral level. Uh, essentially, the PMI or the PSI or the PCI in Australia measures changes in activity levels from one month to the next. Um, now, interestingly, markets don't tend to pay much attention to them in Australia for whatever reason. They don't seem to have the greatest relationship to economic activity, and I think the markets have learned to dismiss them over time. But it was very interesting to see that in August, you saw services, manufacturing and construction sectors all contract in terms of activity levels during the month. And that's unusual in itself. Uh, you could, you know, they're volatile series at the best of times. But when you have all three go at once, it does ring a small little like bell at the back of your head, like, hang on, that doesn't look right. It doesn't, doesn't certainly appear strong. Uh, a couple of things that we need to keep in mind is that this is for August and it was coming off the July results. We had the election outcome in July and, of course, that gave some kind of certainty, not much to businesses and households, but uh, it gave a little bit more certainty as to what was occurring. And you saw that there was actually a, a pickup in most of those sectors during that month. So by declining in, uh, in August, all had sub-50 readings, it was coming off a higher base than what it was previously. Um, and the other thing, um, Joanne, is so that's on the industry and business side, um, but uh, ANZ uh, with Roy Morgan does this, um, what I now think is the, the sort of definitive consumer cons uh, confidence survey um, on the Australian economy. It's out every Tuesday morning. Um, and uh, there's been some interesting readings there um, the last couple of weeks. Look, absolutely. I mean, quite a big fall in consumer confidence last week. It was down 3.5% in the week. So that was pretty disappointing because, as I said before, we know that employment growth is strong and house prices are good and auction clearance rates are up and the RBA cut rates and you know all those things that should be making consumers feel quite good. Um, it's, it is a 
been quite volatile actually in the last couple of weeks, ANZ Consumer Confidence. Um, so the 3.5% fall that we had last week actually just offset a, a similar sort of rise that we'd had three weeks ago that had taken the index to a 33-month high. So this level of volatility is not unusual, but it's quite unusual at a period when things look okay. Um, and what's been interesting is it's been driven almost entirely by volatility in the indices around the economic outlook. So we ask a series of questions. Um, effectively, two of the five are about the economy one year out and five years out, uh, and then two around personal finances and one's around a time to buy a major household item. Uh, so the, the questions or the indices around personal finances have actually remained quite solid. They're well above their long run averages and they're on an upward trend. And that's important because it's those indices that generally feed through to consumption. Um, you know, pe people's consumption patterns tend to reflect their own hip pocket and what they're seeing in their budget rather than what they actually think about the economy. I'm not really sure why we're seeing the volatility in uh, the indices around the economy. It's a little hard to get a reading on, on why, but that is what's been driving it. One option, of course, is perhaps post-election some concern around the effectiveness of government with such a small majority in a more fragmented Senate. Um, now, that may be drawing a long bow, but that's one possibility. Um, but overall consumer confidence is still well above its long-run average. But the four-week moving average has started to sort of peter out a little bit. It's, it had been on quite a strong upward trend, and it looks like it's losing a bit of momentum. So reading over the next couple of weeks will be quite important. I agree. No. One thing I noticed with the ANZ survey, and I followed it a lot more, and obviously you have a much better idea, Joe, than, uh, than myself in terms of the, uh, the, the nuances in the data, but the one thing I noticed, you know, there tends to be quite a substantial move in, in one direction around uh, major data releases, uh, unemployment figures, uh, GDP. So given the, uh, the, the reasonable GDP print, I hope to go and see an increase uh, next week. Um, but I certainly think that politics is playing a role. I was scouring... I was Going back in the memory banks uh, last week, trying to figure out what uh, what happened last week that was a major economic data release that could go and explain the near collapse in uh, in the readings to do with the economy. And the one thing that stuck in the back of my mind was what happened in Canberra uh, last Thursday. Uh, obviously, uh, we saw the government lose uh, three votes uh, in the lower house for the first time in I think it was 50 odd years, uh, and that really does nothing to go and build any confidence and. This whole idea that it's going to be a functional government was thrown out the window within a week of uh, no parliament resuming. Yeah, um, absolutely fascinating, um, and it, that was you know clear, it was all over everybody's TVs, and um, you know I guess sort of really if you if 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 Canberra wanted to provide an example of the type of chaos that it can potentially. Um, you know, and uncertainty that, it can, it, that, that this parliament is, is potentially going to bring, that was probably a great, you know, first step. Um, and maybe you're, yeah, I think um, there's quite possibly some of that at work. Look, absolutely. I mean, we know that consumers, you know, follow social media and the news and the newspaper. So I think often the answers around the economic outlook tend to reflect what's being reported in popular media. So I do think that's important. But as you said, David, there's, a, there's been a lot out this week, actually, a huge amount out this week. And most of it, you know, by and large is positive. So we'll wait and see what next week holds. Yeah, absolutely. And look, like I said, you know, the Treasurer being out dancing a jig over the... Um, uh, over the GDP numbers does reinforce the most important point, which is the economy is actually in pretty good health when you when you look at it um, when you look at it overall. Uh, so, but absolutely no doubt, um, the the next the coming weeks are going to be uh, very interesting uh, in terms of that that uh, high frequency data. We'll be keeping a close eye on it. 
Okay, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast uh, from Business Insider Australia. Don't forget you can sc- subscribe to us on iTunes where you can rate us and leave us a review. And I'm here with David Scott and Joanne Masters uh, from uh, ANZ. Now, uh, let's quickly look at where this leaves us going forward. Uh, really interesting month ahead. We've just had a, um, a RBA decision this week, never in play really. Um, rates on hold, but we've got a new RBA um, governor, um, Phil Lowe, um, and uh, we have, very importantly, um, a Fed meeting um, coming up on the decision will be the 21st um, of, of this month. Uh, so, uh, guys, I'll throw this over to you. Um, what's your outlook for what's going to happen um, between now and December on rates? Which rates in particular? Are you talking Aussie rates or US rates or both rates? Or- my view is that the RBA is still going to have to go and cut rates at least once. That's my personal view, and not everyone shares that. But uh, I don't see enough in the economy from an inflation standpoint to justify keeping interest rates where they are. At the moment, uh, the Fed seems very reluctant to go and move uh, interest rates. And until that actually changes, the Aussie dollar is going to be higher. That's going to go and crimp tradable inflation. Um, yeah, US uh, is a really interesting one. I wrote a piece this morning from ANZ about uh, you know the uh, misgivings of the ISM uh, composite data that's been uh, that's been highly publicised this week. It was a horrific uh, figure that came in. It was a six-week low for their uh, composite uh, reading, which is a combination of manufacturing and services, uh, suggesting that uh, that growth in the services sector, which is all important to the US economy, was starting to stall. Uh, but its relationship with economic growth has almost unraveled in, since the uh, the GFC. Um, so when you, t- you take that and you say, like, well, is the U.S. economy really that weak? Is the U.S. labor market really that weak? We saw the payrolls report that came out and disappointed everyone. But we know August payrolls tend to disappoint. It was so well communicated beforehand. Um, I want to see the Fed take a bit of action and, uh, and be a, a bit bold and not go and react to what the markets are. Uh, are wanting them to do. If there's the case to go and raise interest rates, I think they should be doing it. If it's not in September, I think in December, all things given at the moment. Um, and uh, Joe, what do you think on the on the Fed? Um, there was some talk a little while ago that uh, September may be in play, but then we got this week jobs data for um, for for August, um, so it's kind of taken that off the table. So we're back in this situation of, you know. Are they ever going to to pull the trigger? Yeah, look, I mean, it's it's been frustrating, presumably for them, and and certainly for financial markets. And there's no doubt that the the hurdle to raise rates is really high. Um, we expect them to raise rates in December, uh, but you know, you've got to get your ducks in line in order to get there, right? So uh, the the US data actually, the economy looks okay. You know, wages are picking up, albeit off a low base. Inflation, the last couple of readings have been a little disappointing, but broadly, slowly but surely sort of trending a little bit higher. So uh, we think uh, December, that's also post the US election. um, So I think that's important. Uh, So we've got a December in there for the moment uh, and pretty comfortable with that view. And um, then looking back to um, Australia, um, November, do you think? Melbourne Cup Day? Look, we don't think so. Uh, we've got uh, Cash in Australia ending the year uh, where it is now at, at one and a half. Uh, but clearly the risks are that you're getting an easing. I mean, I think you said right at the very start, it's just no one's having the conversation about tightening, right? So that's a little bit of an obvious statement. But I, I think the risks of an easing are not insignificant, if you like. Um, uh, clearly the Q3 uh, CPI data in late October is going to be really important. 
Um, and, you know, people are talking about whether you get a 0.5 or a 0.3. The difference doesn't seem that big. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think about it from a slightly different framework, though. I think that it's actually, it is about the number that you get for CPI, but it's actually about what it means for the inflation outlook and, most importantly, the RBA's inflation profile. So at the moment, their inflation profile has uh, underlying inflation back at the very bottom of the band uh, over the next sort of nine months or so, and, but then staying right at the very bottom end of the band. So anything that generates a downward shift in that inflation profile um, is going to put pressure on rates, clearly. And I think one of the things to be watching really carefully at the moment is inflation expectations. Uh, the RBA recently made the comment that on all measures, it's below uh, inflation expectations are below their long-run average and falling, and the 10-year break-even rate, I think, is really important. So, um, the, you know, there's quite a bit coming up before November, but our best guess is that uh, this year sees no more change. I want to ask um, quickly one thing that draws those two uh, uh, parts of the conversation together, the, the Fed and, and the RBA, right? And that's about um, in, the interest rate d differential between um, the Australian market and, well, the Australian currency, what's affecting the Australian currency and what's affecting the US dollar. Um, do you want to explain how that drives, um, how that drives uh, the currency, first of all, um, uh, but also then the, the, the impact that it can potentially have on, on um, both economies. Yeah, sure. I mean, for the Australian dollar, it tends to be the long end of the curve that's in, important in terms of driving the currency. So around that sort of 10-year space, uh, if you look at economic modelling, it's that 10-year interest rate differential that drives the currency. And, and that's what we call coupon chase, right? Uh, investors want return. They want the highest possible return for any given level of risk that they can they can get. And that spread at the long end has obviously come down. It's well below its sort of long-run historical averages uh, and sitting at around 35 basis points or so. Um, but in a low interest rate world, that's still attractive, right? Uh, so, you know, I think if you'd sat here 10 years ago and said, is a 35 basis point spread attractive, everyone would have said, ah, uh, no. But, you know, in, in the current environment where you've got negative interest rates elsewhere, uh, it's it's strong, and of course, you know, Australian uh, offshore investors are very uh, used to investing in in Australian bonds. It's a very comfortable place for them to be, uh, and of course, we still have a AAA credit rating. Yeah. Uh, and even if that uh, even if Australia's credit rating gets downgraded at AA, in the current environment, actually still looks okay. Um, so that coupon chase is really supporting the Australian dollar, and you know, in simple terms, that is offshore investors looking for a return, and so they buy Australian dollars in order to buy Australian bonds or other yielding assets, and that's unlikely to go away anytime soon. And in the current market, of course, when we look at that differential between the U.S. Treasuries and say, um, and, and, the, and the Australian um, Australian Treasuries, um, the you know people will come to 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 Australia, look at the in the Australian market that there's a there's a better yield there, so um, they'll buy here, and that helps support the currency. Um, okay, now just speaking of bonds, um, a mini riot was what uh, Jefferies said uh, happened in the Japanese uh, bond market at the start of this month. I had a look at the, the numbers today and it looks like it's come back um, a bit. But basically, long term, um, what's been happening with um, Japanese government bonds, most people will know um, that the, um, their yields have been falling. Um, across um, the entire curve, and um, they've been negative, um, particularly I think the the, the twos and tens, um, uh, you know, trading at negative yields. That started to turn a little bit at the start of this month. 
Now, the question that De Jeffrey's raised uh, in this was maybe the markets are starting to rethink this whole QE business. Um, it happened fairly quietly, I think, was one of the interesting aspects of it. You didn't really see there's been a big sell-off in, um, in Japanese bonds at all, um, which was happening because to move rates by that amount, you've got to sell a lot of uh, product. And, um, you know, you're selling it at a loss um, as well. So um, depending on, on where you entered the trade. So, um, Dave, where, um, how did you see that? I know you raised an eyebrow at it um, earlier during the week. Um, what was your take? A lesson in what a crowded trade is and one-way positioning is probably the easiest answer. Um, Look, there's a couple of things that I think that are happening here. First of all, you had Jackson Hole. Uh, there was an expectation there. Janet Yellen laid the foundation at the time that, uh, that the prospect of a near-term US rate hike was on the table. Of course, that would go and help lift uh, dollar-yen. That would go and help inflation uh, prospects in Japan, which obviously they've been grappling with for the past 25 years. Um, the second one is uh, you mentioned the Fed before has uh, got their meeting in September 21. About uh, 12 hours beforehand, we'll get a Bank of Japan decision, which I think, given the current state of affairs, looks like it's going to be the far more important meeting. Um, there's a whole lot of discord uh, on the BOJ board based on reports from the Japanese press about what exactly they're planning to go and do with monetary policy. Uh, they've got a, a special economic uh, review that's, uh, that's going to be taking place before they go and conduct this rate meeting. And there's, that's sort of fueled the belief that there was going to be a... a more monetary easing, more uh, quantitative easing, that was going to go and help bonds. Now all of a sudden there's, uh, there's some discussion from some analysts that they might actually go and look to go and further reduce interest rates, uh, further into negative territory, and actually pull back on the level of, uh, of bonds they're buying uh, to, go and in, to go and lift the yield curve, to go and help their financial sector, who are obviously getting hit hard by, uh, by interest margins being collapsing because of what they've enacted so far. Um, so you, you put those two things together, then all of a sudden you've had a big unwind in the uh, JGB 10-year. Uh, you've seen the, the consequences now. But you look at where it was, you know, out to 20 years at one point, uh, every single JGB was negatively yielding. Uh, unless you think it's going to be doomsday scenario, it's, uh, it seems quite unfoundable to actually go and hold a position so, uh, no, so bearish. Um, yeah, a, a mini-riot, uh, Joe, would you... Um uh, describe it as, as that pretty big sell-off but look a pretty big sell-off and as you said sort of unnoticed um, I guess I mean there's been a few technical things around the movements in JGBs and um, you know bodge action on the one hand but asset purchases on the other and so a few things that have been kind of counteracting each other which is quite unique to the uh, institutional setup in Japan so uh, I mean, look, Japan's difficult, right? And there's a myriad of problems there. And as David said, that you know, some they've been trying to tackle for several decades. Um, but uh, from my perspective, I, I wouldn't read too much into it. I, I think we're, we're very much in uncharted waters when we've got negative interest rates. And so everyone's sort of feeling their way a little bit about how it plays out and how it all gets unwound. So I'm, I'm, I'm not too worried at the moment. Okay, great. You've been listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Just going to quickly talk um, about some restaurant discoveries. Um, uh, I recently went to Hubert, um, which is this. One of the reasons I went was because bloody things all over my Facebook feed. Um, everybody's like, "Oh, we're here in Hubert, and what a great time we had! And this is such a cool place, and the food is awesome." So, actually, for a friend's. Um, uh, it, uh, so Hubert is on, um, I think, Bly Street, which is beside. 
um, uh, you know, uh, what is it? So Neil Perry Spice Temple is up the end. The Chop House is there. It's kind of one of the big centres of gravity for um, for uh, Sydney dining. Um, but uh, it is actually quite a cool place. Um, it's you know you go down into this um, you know the, these uh, s- this winding staircase. Um, annoyingly, they don't. They have no phone number, right? Super, super annoying because I had to do a friend's surprise birthday party there, and I needed to figure out some logistics. Um, so I was going in completely blind. Didn't know if we'd get a table. What? Um, so they don't, and they only take reservations for five and above. And there was, you know, um, two couples for us that that evening. Um, so anyway, that was a little bit. That was uh, that was the only. That's the only thing I would um, I would fault them for. Dining experience, amazing. The decor is really cool. It's like a sort of New York bistro. Um, food selection's awesome. We had the banquet. Cost us about, um, you know, 80 bucks a head, I think. Um, really good value for, you know, a, a special night out. So absolutely, um, I reckon that uh, is, is worth a look if, you're look if you're looking for somewhere interesting and different to check out. And I understand why people are, you know, raving about it on Facebook too. Well, look, I haven't been to Hubert's, but I hear nothing but good things about it. And apparently it has not had one bad review in the press. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's uh, pretty impressive if it is. Uh, but I am going in a couple of weeks, so I'm pretty excited to hear that it's it's that good. Uh, the, the, look, the, the one I've been to recently that sort of sticks in my mind is um, Norsk Door, which is a wine bar come restaurant on Pitt Street, um, a little bit like a lot of these small bars. It's this nondescript door. But what was really different about it is you you go down these stairs and then there's this long sort of commercial industrial type hallway um, really long you know maybe I don't know 30 40 meters long and um, it's quite poorly lit and as you walk down there's these wolf sounds that come at you from various directions no thank you <laughs> yeah it's, it was it was unusual I was actually with someone I don't know very well so I was a bit like this is slightly unusual and then when you get to the end you push this little buzzer and and it's like the secret door knock sort of thing and then the door opens and, and you go in and it's it's all quite normal but they have all these kangaroo pelts on the back of the seats and um, anyway look very funky decor but very very funky um, food probably more for guys than girls it's a Viking inspired sort of set up a lot of bread and a lot of meat um, but look really really fun on the way down it sounds very New York you know um, those uh, little bars that you go into you know where you have to walk into a, tel- a telephone booth to, um, to to get in to get in the front door um, Scotty anywhere good lately You've asked the wrong person here. Um, I'm, I'm not a big foodie by any stretch of the imagination. Look, I'll just go back to my old favourite uh, in Crow's Nest, Lee's Fortuna Court on Alexander Street. It's, uh, That's it's, awesome. It's bonzo, that place. So if you haven't tried it before, I think most of Sydney has, but if you haven't, make sure you get down there. Okay, I, I actually haven't been. Um, you see everybody around the table here just looking at me in disgust. So, um, yeah, absolutely, I'll, I'll have a look. Um, okay, you've been listening to the Devils in Details uh, podcast from Business Insider Australia. Uh, our guest this week has been Joanne Masters, who's Senior Economist at ANZ. Joanne, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. It's always great with you guys. Uh, and uh, David Scott, uh, thanks for coming on again and sharing your wisdom and insights. <laughs> wisdom and insights. Uh, thanks, everyone, and I'll see you in two weeks' time. Uh, I've been Paul Colgan. This show is produced by Josh Nicholas. Uh, You can find us on iTunes where you can subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. Uh, You can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au, and we're all individually on Twitter. Uh, Have a great week. 
Today's episode was delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business, helping you save time and money. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when you send on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.